Um, I do quite a lot of teaching on the BA Community Education uh, Programme, believe it or not. It still exists in an institution like the University of Edinburgh. And I'm also a Programme Director for a fully online <laughs> Masters in Social Justice and Community Action. And that was a bit of a kind of battlefield promotion, as it were, because I worked alongside uh, my friend and ex-colleague now and mentor, I suppose in some senses, Akugo Emijulu, who was the programme director for that programme, and she's since moved on to become a superstar professor at Warwick. I don't know if you know Akugo Emijulu's work, but you should really you should check it out. So she left me anyway, and now I'm programme director there. Uh, and I and I guess I'd just like to suggest that um, those kind of aforementioned teaching commitments to some extent have provided me with kind of, I suppose, equal measures of like strife and maybe a little, maybe more strife and a little bit of insight into the kind of like themes that we're talking about um, today. So I'd just like to begin really, uh, I suppose, by, you know, providing a little bit of kind of context, institutional context that have led to my kind of like musings, stroke ramblings, stroke kind of embryonic thoughts. And um, <clears throat> then after that, um, I'd like to move on and share some kind of thoughts about critical digital citizenship that I've developed in dialogue over quite a long time with loads of colleagues. So, you know, I guess they're my thoughts, but it's been, they've been developed in dialogue with, you know, in no particular order, and I'm sure I'm forgetting people here, but particularly with Professor Akugo Emijulu, uh, Jeremy Knox, who's sitting over there, uh, Emma Dowling, Hugh Davies, um, Jen Ross, Karen Gregory, Phil Scheel and even Shan Bain. So I don't know, you probably know some of those names if not all of them. Uh, and these kind of thoughts, my thoughts on critical digital citizenship um, are arranged around, I guess, experimenting with this idea of um, fetish thinking in the context of the digital. And so I guess I'd like to suggest that um, part of critical digital citizenship and I suppose education for critical digital citizenship should be um, about developing, a, um, uh, applying a kind of critical theory of fetish thinking to you know, the digital, as it were. So the, the next thing I want to do is, I suppose, um, um, explain what I mean by kind of fetish. And then I'd like to move on and um, unpack its implications by applying it to uh, three different narratives, namely what I'm calling ameliorative digital citizenship, <clears throat> and then forms of folk political resistance to those kinds of narratives. And then finally, like quote-unquote network society accounts of social justice movements which are still quite prevalent and obscure the old relations of expropriation and exploitation that actually make a lot of that kind of social justice activism possible in the first place. And then I'd just like to return uh, at the end to the small example of the Masters in Social Justice and Community Action as an as a online programme, a kind of precarious and experimental kind of online programme, and try and, and share just an example of uh, student work uh, and think about that, how that kind of reflects some of the stuff I've been talking about. Um, so hopefully that all sounds okay. Um, 
So the first, it's incumbent upon me, I suppose, to try and explain what I mean by fetish thinking in the context of the digital. So when we talk about digital culture, digital education, or even digital citizenship, in what ways is the concept of fetish thinking helpful? So to me, fetish thinking can be generally taken to indicate reifying tendencies, which, where we endow abstract ideas and objects, such as the digital, with intrinsic powers and properties that should more correctly be understood as resulting from a wider ecology of relations. Um, and so I particularly like David Harvey's, uh, <clears throat> the Marxist geographer David Harvey's definition of, of fetishism as the habit that uh, humans have of endowing real or imagined objects or entities uh, with self-contained, mysterious and evil, even magical powers um, <clears throat> to move and shape the world in distinctive ways. And so my claim really is that uh, applying a critical theory of fetishism to the digital and higher education is a necessary but not sufficient step towards something like critical digital citizenship. Um, and um, what I'd also like to suggest is that a digital fetish can be discerned in different narratives of citizenship in educational settings, wherein the digital <clears throat> is either reified and then employed in dualistic modes of reasoning that, that have already been kind of have already been explored by the first two speakers, you know, the, the real world and the digital, online, offline, and all those kinds of unhelpful binaries, or they're posited as, um, to paraphrase David Harvey, single bullet solutions to what should properly be seen as systemic problems. So I'd like to just move on and unpack that a little bit. Um, so this is what I want to talk about here is David Harvey's theory of co-evolution in the context of technological determinism. And it's a particular schema that I, I've just used heuristically really. So I don't kind of subscribe wholesale to you know David Harvey's kind of system of thought but I have found it kind of useful and it's taken I suppose from his developed over his body of work on the ways in which capitalism as a totality co-evolves across um, different activity spheres he calls them variously or moments of human experience also taken as a, a treated as a kind of totality and the spheres outlined here on the left hand side or the slide are I suppose mental conceptions of the world, what concerns us often is, as educators, uh, social relations, our relations to nature, uh, the kind of you know lived space and everyday life, the kind of quotidian, um, and then the materiality of commodity production, and then finally institutional arrangements. And the important point, I think, for me at least, is that Harvey is arguing that any strategy for systemic social change has to pay attention to the ways in which each of these spheres are autonomous in their own right, but partly internalise one another. Um, they co-evolve in dynamic interaction uh, with one another. Um, and um, at certain points, at particular times in particular places, a particular moment or sphere might play a kind of vanguard role in a co-evolutionary process. Um, but fetish thinking would start to creep in where we sort of falsely or spuriously see, you know, one sphere as um, in that kind of moment where it plays a lead role in having some kind of, you know, a a a intrinsic powers attributed to it that it doesn't actually properly have.
So I suppose, quite polemically, David Harvey argues that, um, uh, quote, most work in the social sciences favours some single bullet theory of social change, institutionalists favour institutional innovations, economic determinists favour new technologies of production, socialists and anarchists favour class struggle, and so on and so forth. Um, and um, that's the kind of uh, mode of thought that I've kind of started from here in this uh, in, in critiquing fetish thinking. Um, so, what I'd like to move on and do is um, apply a kind of critique of fetish thinking in relation to three different narratives um, of or around digital citizenship. And the first narrative that I want to address is what I'm calling ameliorative digital citizenship. And um, the reason why I'm using the word ameliorative, I suppose, is because it's not that this particular narrative of citizenship ignores issues of social justice wholesale or the public good, but rather it sees these issues, at least in my view, as issues of mere exclusion from, from, the, the, from dominant structures um, uh, rather than, um, you know, or whereby those kind of structural parameters remain kind of untouched or kind of questioned themselves. And that arguably remains the dominant narrative of digital citizenship. And as Akugule Majulu and I have kind of debated over and argued, it takes place against a background assumption that technological progress is inevitable, which is something we've already kind of touched on a little bit. Uh, and it's neutral somehow. Uh, that's not a political relation in itself. And therefore, it functions as a reaction to uh, digital technologies operating as disciplining devices, compelling individuals and groups to adopt particular skills and ways of being in order to successfully exist in a world constantly disrupted by technological change. And I think in that narrative, digital technology becomes entangled with in my view, what education theorist Biesta calls the learnification of, of social and political problems, which is a kind of fetish thinking in itself, and it kind of combines with this kind of fetish of, of, of the digital, where it's imagined, for example, that the construction of smart cities managed through the mining of vast data sets can be the answer to all urban ills. And I suppose in the context of digital citizenship and higher education, what that kind of means is kind of educational initiatives designed to democratise knowledge about coding, about algorithms, about big data and modelling for the benefit of those groups who are failing to be flexible in a disrupted world. Um, and I, I'd like to just show a quick uh, video. Also, have the audio if you get them. Uh, of oh, thank you. Sorry for the feedback. A quick video, and so this video is a quick sort of like propaganda video, if you like, from Edinburgh University about, uh, uh, about the city deal in Edinburgh, so it's sort of transforming Edinburgh into like a data capital of Europe, this kind of like digital utopia and the role that Edinburgh University plays, and I think it's quite a good kind of illustration of this kind of narrative. Um, Absolutely delighted with the announcement of the city deal. We feel this is a fantastic opportunity to 
work with our partners, governments, oh, sorry. councils, other universities, oh, and local businesses to really drive forward. Oh, that's, yeah, yeah, thanks. Sorry. Well, the University of Edinburgh is absolutely delighted with the announcement of the City Deal. We feel this is a fantastic opportunity to work with our partners and governments, and councils, other universities, and local businesses to really drive forward the importance of data science. So the university's role in City Deal is badged under innovation. For example, using patients' data, we've been able to reduce the incidence of these complications of diabetes, amputations, and blindness by 40 percentage. A really remarkable impact across the whole of Scotland. The strength of the computer and data sciences in this region has allowed two unicorns, those are billion-dollar startup companies, to fall in the creative and travel industries. Similarly, forward, we will be able with the data sciences to support a host of industries that really need to understand data from the banking and financial services sector through to tourism to festival support and onwards. So our ultimate aim is to make Edinburgh and its region the data capital of Europe. We're seeking to generate skills that allow young people to get fantastic jobs in new industries as they come along. We're seeking to bring in the entrepreneurs that will establish the exciting new companies that will exploit the opportunities of data and produce benefits, including economic growth, forever. So, sorry about that, I think trying to get the video going with the slides and the, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing, I have no idea what's going on. Okay. <laughs> anyway, the, so, what's the problem with that kind of narrative? Uh, you know, I, I mean, apart from the obvious thing of kind of su sustainable economic growth being at the kind of top of the totem pole that drives the kind of purpose of higher education, I mean, I think if the video were a bit longer and it spoke to more people, it would, you know, it would also seem, I think it would seem to imply as well, we'd get the view that all manner of kind of social injustices, like the privatisation of public space in the city of Edinburgh, uh, chronic public health issues, austerity cuts, housing crises, population displacement, you know, poverty, racism and even xenophobia can somehow be overcome through, you know, uh, you know, the smart city and the datafication of everyday life, and probably by association, increased digital literacy. And I think that kind of thinking in turn 
ensnares higher education in solutionism, which is a term that I heard used last year by Amy Collier, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, um, C-O-L-L-I-E-R, uh, who's an Associate Provost for Digital Learning at Middlebury College in the States. And she was doing a talk on critical digital pedagogy from a US perspective. I like that kind of turn of phrase, and it strikes me that it kind of strikes me that it's endemic in education generally, not just higher education. Um, and I'd like to kind of offer a brief example of why that kind of narrative is kind of problematic. So um, last summer, a sociologist Hugh Davies, who I mentioned earlier on, was invited to respond to uh, was invited to talk about uh, radical digital citizenship, critical digital citizenship by uh, Google Emma Julio and myself. And one thing that he argued really struck with me was he argued that, you know, one myth of anti-immigration discourse is that closing borders will lessen competition for jobs and increase wages. Um, but, you know, dominant digital platforms use digital labour and precarious digital labour to create a transnational playing field, meaning that those kind of young graduates that, of the type that you see in the kind of, you know, promotional video there, compete in a global marketplace where the price of labour power is on average much cheaper to reproduce and the young people still pay local living expenses in a context of lack of affordable housing and, a, and the context of a punitive welfare system designed, I would say, around the myth of full employment. So educationally speaking, I think that is marked by a, a kind of problem-solving rather than a problem-posing approach and an unwillingness to see the digital as enfolded in two problem representations to be challenged, that ought to be challenged and reframed in the context of um, uh, social and educational policy. And so in the Masters in Social Justice and Community Action, uh, one thing that we try to do is use um, uh, feminist policy analysis and feminist policy analyst Carol Backey's work in particular um, to kind of her kind of argument that we need to kind of move from problems uh, to problematizations uh, in order to analyze the ways in which kind of social policy conjures into the being the very kind of problems that it claims to kind of that it purports to solve um, and um, you know that uh, that kind of process of problematization is an important part of the educational process and that the digital needs to be reflexively included into that um, and I want to try and offer a wee example of student work that I thought tried to, that we, you know, tries to kind of embody those kinds of principles later on. Um, the, the second fetish that I was reflecting on, this is maybe the weakest point in my argument, I would say. So I wouldn't say it's a, a fully fledged kind of thing yet. But I think it's not based on my kind of personal speculations and reflections. Um, it's a kind of response that I've kind of encountered from some colleagues to the narrative that I was just talking about in a sense where digital citizenship is recuperated into neoliberal citizen subjectivities that are marked by effective commitments to precarious working conditions and few expectations of state-based welfare. Um, so I've sensed that some of those reactions um, against that narrative have shown their own kinds of fetish thinking and I want to try and explain that a little bit. I think it's a form of thinking. Um, okay, I think it's a form of thinking that um, uh, Tess touched on a bit. Um, you know, it assumes that what's authentic in education and community building is the face-to-face. -face, that online somehow the kind of poor cousin of 
of face-to-face educational encounters, uh, all that kind of stuff. And not only does that foreclose other ways of thinking about uh, the digital, but I would say it fetishises it by failing to examine the everyday entanglement, the mundane entanglement of digital space with the space of place in classrooms, at work, at home, and in activist practices. And so I would agree here with the work of Shan Bain, for example, um, you know, that the distinction between digital culture and material culture is diminishing in relevance quite rapidly. And I think arguably it also smuggles in problematic arguments about reclaiming an academy or a university somehow more kind of like authentic, you know, democratically kind of idealist that kind of never was and clearly was always part of, um, you know, a, a colonialist kind of project. So, um, you know, put in the context of like movements for decolonising education, that kind of attitude even I think becomes slightly problematic unless it's properly interrogated. And so maybe it's a bit uncharitable, but I think you could argue that such resistance is based on what Cernasek and Williams call folk politics, by which they mean a collective and historically constituted common sense that's become out of step with actual mechanisms of power, through the assumption that immediacy is always better and more authentic, and on the flip side, a deep suspicion of abstraction and mediation. So in other words, you know, they argue that, I suppose, um, a lack of kind of artifice is wrongly equated with the full expression of, of, of human freedom. Um, and I found that a kind of a, a, a useful kind of perspective and how kind of the digital is conjured as this, you know, immaterial sort of folk devil, if you like, and allows these other kind of forms of fetishized forms of resistance to, to be reproduced. Um, And, well, I suppose fundamentally that impoverishes, you know, our critical analysis of, you know, the ways in which uh, digital technology is, you know, itself, um, you know, a, a, is, is not at all kind of somehow separate from perennial debates around kind of social justice and the public good. Um, so the last kind of fetish I wanted to kind of touch on, I'm going to do kind of quite briefly so I can show this example of student work is around this idea of network society and the digital commons or maybe the you know uh, you know that's propagated by kind of theories of like immaterial labor you know in the academy also in contemporary kind of like social movements and as uh, Yassi Perik has demonstrated in his 2015 work a geology of media the digital demands its ecology in a properly material and social uh, and properly material and social senses um, so, you know, we see this kind of like narrative of contemporary social justice movements such as the one promulgated by theorists like Castells of, you know, uh, the Arab Spring, the 15M movement, Occupy, <clears throat> and I think that marked the end of that book. This was pre-Black Lives Matter and Movement for Black Lives, but I'm sure he would have unfolded that into his analysis as well of the internet as embodying a culture of freedom, a kind of frictionless kind of space where leaderless movements kind of rhizomatically kind of emerge, this space of kind of democratic possibility. And some of that's true, but it's ideological in the strict sense that it presents a partial truth as a kind of universal truth. Um, and, you know, so that narrative goes that digital communication technology demonstrates a kind of imminent tendency to create a living learning, learning knowledge commons replete with all these democratic possibilities. And I can only really gesture towards the problems with the narrative kind of here, and if I had more time, 
would like to kind of talk about them. Um, <clears throat> but of course it's well known, I suppose, that regimes of labour exploitation and resource expropriation in both mineral extraction and product assembly ensure that these kind of digital citizenship opportunities of the digital commons are um, uh, um, um, are um, you know fundamentally you know taken from the peoples whose material labour makes the conditions of you know uh, makes makes possible the you know the, the conditions for the kind of digital commons to kind of take place. <clears throat> um, so. Knowing that I'm kind of running out of time, I'd like to talk a bit more about that, but I'd also like to share a small example of student work. But I think the point I would like to make is that, you know, population and displacement, housing crises, things like that, that are taking place in like global techno hubs like San Francisco and so on. For just to give the kind of obvious example, where there's kind of public health crises, where, you know, people are having to choose between kind of rent and health insurance, for example you know, can't be held as kind of like separate from those processes of corporate state collusion where tech companies in Silicon Valley use public infrastructures for free, free ride on public infrastructures and, you know, seek tax exemptions as states try to attract like inwards, you know, in, inward investment and all this kind of stuff. And, and these kinds of dynamics ought to be seen, you know, I think as like in the kind of co-evolutionary sense as, you know, fundamentally like related to one another and not, not separately. <clears throat> um, so, the last thing I wanted to kind of do, and I wanted to talk around it a little bit more, was just show an example of kind of student work. There's a video that's maybe about three minutes long. Do you think I've got enough to kind of show, show that? Yeah? And it's an, and, okay, oh thanks. Yeah. Total trepidation whenever I go to try and show a video, plug in the audio and stuff. Um, <clears throat> so I wanted to talk around it a little more, but I realise I'm running out of time. Uh, but this kind of piece of work <clears throat> certainly is an example of trying to like move from problems, pro uh, problems, problem solving to problematizations, and it's also, I guess, an example of um, you know a kind of uh, approach to assessment, which also kind of brings in principles of productive alignment with people's actual practice and activism and fosters some kind of transnational collaboration. So the piece of work's a collaborative piece of group work between three students. So there's Barbara Becknell, she's based in Oakland. Gary Weir, who was in Vietnam at the time and has finished the course. Uh, Ramona Africa, who was a key project partner who worked with Barbara Becknell in, in, in Oakland around prison reform. And then Claire Rogerson, who's based in Sunderland. And the short video was a, a part of a larger piece of work which formed an advocacy campaign uh, for policy reform around state-sponsored slavery in the US. And so it was the product of sort of transnational collaboration and was conceived in dialogue with an ex-prisoner activist, Ramona Africa, part of a MOVE, org the Move organization project team. And so as such, it kind of aligned productively with Barbara's ongoing kind of work. And it's a small, it's a small example, but I just thought it was a, a good example to try and share. Uh, if I could make it work. <laughs> um, sorry.
okay. So that's it, that, that's it really, and I kind of wanted to contextualise that bit of work a little bit more, but, um, you know, I, I suppose one point to kind of <clears throat> finish with would be to say that that kind of value or that kind of like impact, no matter how kind of like small it might be, is just absolutely kind of not recognised in the institutional context that I'm kind of like working in, which is about, which sees digital education as a, you know, you know, learning at scale and all that kind of other stuff that, um, you know, goes along with those dominant narratives around kind of like digital education and higher education. So the programme as it stands at the moment is in a really kind of like precarious position, I would say, where it's kind of in a sense caught in a, between a rock and a hard place between, you know, these problematic narratives of digital citizenship on the one hand and then, you know, a, I, I, and then I guess a conflation of the digital with neoliberalism where particular um, colleagues who I would imagine would be supportive of a project like this would kind of distance themselves kind of from it on those terms. So it's a kind of ongoing struggle really and this was just a kind of attempt to think through some of this stuff and um, have a discussion. So thanks for your time and your patience because I know it's been a long day so thanks. Thank you.